It's a new week, and there's a new presidential administration in town. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. If his modern-era unprecedented early firing of the General Counsel of the National Labor Relations Board and his immediate re-entry to the Paris Climate Accords are any indication, the administration of President Joe Biden is going to be a series of favors for the left-wing special interest groups that helped get him elected. Joining me to discuss the new Biden administration and the role those special interest groups have had in the transition process is Capital Research Center's research specialist, Robert Stilson, who compiled Influence Watch's extensive profile on the Biden-Harris transition. Uh, Robert, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work with CRC? Yeah, sure. I'm, my background's in law um, before coming to CRC. At, at CRC, I, I do a few things. I, I manage a couple of our internal you know, in-house research resources, I guess. You know, I work at, um, in the Influence Watch uh, profiles. And then um, from a research and writing perspective, a lot of my work focuses on the connection between nonprofits and government. You know, and that goes both ways, right? So, you know, government can influence nonprofits through regulation and, and, and through funding, you know, federal grant making. And then activist nonprofits can influence government in various ways, which is, I, I think, what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, we're here to talk about the second one. Uh, Again, you compiled for us this huge and exhaustive profile on the transition. Why does the transition matter? What is the transition, and how does it relate to the new administration? Well, sure. Yeah, you know, writ large, I guess the transition refers to everything that moves from one presidential administration to the other, and all of the sort of behind-the-scenes uh, preparations and, and and activities that need to take place for that to occur. There are so there's high level appointments and nominees that take place as part of that, and those get a lot of media attention. But there are also things called agency review teams, or sometimes they're called transition teams, and those get attention, but but less, and and they matter because you know these are you know, hundreds of of individuals, usually specialists in a particular field, who are split between about forty different review teams that handle a certain part of the federal government, either an agency or or a couple agencies together, or an entire department, and they'll. Uh, sort of analyze those departments and influence who the administration is going to hire in some cases, and in fact, in many cases, be hired in the administration themselves. And so it's really, um, and they'll know, also And they'll also prepare this, the sort of the policy transition, the, you know, what rules that are in process should be stopped, if any should be continued, what litigation should continue, that sort of thing. Exactly. And so if you're trying to get a handle on what the next four years of the government's going to look like in the executive branch at least it really pays to try to get a handle on the influences that these people are going to be bringing with them because you know if you think about it you know, a federal department a government in general is just a collection of, of people and it is the product of the influences yeah, it's the, it's, the, those... it's the classic the classic uh statement of this uh, is one of morton black i believe it's morton blackwell uh his laws of politics his personnel is policy and your your agency review team is your first personnel, even before you appoint anyone to a Senate-confirmed position. These are the people who come in and tell you, this is what they're doing, and this is what we think it should do. Sure. And the people on these teams are going to be, in many cases, hired or appointed themselves. In some cases, they already have been. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, the I guess, the thesis, if you will, behind the profile. And so we've dug into the professional backgrounds of, of the people on these teams and have, have begun the process of analyzing it. And again, it's of course, it's typical for senior appointees and for these agency reviewers to be alumni of or activists with special interest groups that align with the 
incoming administration and the incoming administration's ideology. Uh, would you say that this that the Biden team is no exception? Oh, yeah, I think it's absolutely. I think from a senior appointee perspective, I think that, you know, a good example of that, and this has been covered extensively, you know, Neera Tandon's uh, nomination for, for OMB director is, a, you know, she's the president. And, o- and OMB, o- OMB director, for those who aren't aware, is one of the most powerful positions in the federal government. It has ultimate sign off on all uh, executive branch regulation. Sure. And, you know, she's the president of the Center for American Politics, which is a uh, Center for American Progress. Progress. Sorry. Yeah. Center for American Progress. And uh, yeah. And so um, that's a establishment, I guess you'd call them Democratic uh, affiliated. Um, yeah, it's, 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 John, it's, John, it's John Podesta's think tank. It, the the well, well entangled with the Democratic establishment of it was you know entangled with the Obama administration. Obviously, Podesta was a senior advisor to Barack Obama when he was president, uh, and again now Tandon is appointed to a cabinet level position in the Biden administration. Right, and so she, you know, many commentators have noted this. You know, you'd expect to bring the influences from that organization with her into her position in government, and you'd expect the same thing at the um, on the agency review teams, the lower level appointments, and, and people who staff these agencies. So you wrote for Capital Research Center uh, last week uh, a characterization of of the Biden landing teams uh, as government universities, unions, and lawyers. And to me, I hear four Democratic special interest groups. Uh, do you have some good examples? Some good, uh, you know, some good examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think those were. Uh... Right, so so we've done the departments of labor, justice, education, and 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 the EPA for for this initial thing. We're almost done with interior, transportation, treasury, and energy as well. But for, for that post, for that for that article, um, I tried to sort of analyze and see what I saw. I guess you call them commonalities amongst the members of the teams across those four departments before I got into any specifics. And uh, yeah, so that was that was my conclusion. I guess you'd say. Um, about 70% or close to 70% of the 100, 105 members of those four teams combined and close to 70% of them have prior executive branch experience, which, which I guess makes sense. So they, would have, so they would have been in the Obama or the Clinton, theoretically Carter, but probably Obama and Clinton administrations. Yeah, I think overwhelmingly Obama with, with um, some Clinton as well. Uh, it's fair to say, certainly. So yeah, prior government experience. Um, interesting one. This, I'm not the only one who noticed this, but um, I think... What one of the more interesting things to me was that almost forty percent of all the all the people across all four of those teams, almost forty percent were either currently or formerly affiliated with an American university or, or college or so institute of mm-hmm. higher education, which I thought seemed high, um, but I you know I, it's why you pointed out and it's a uh, yeah I mean I mean we you know it, it's not a surprise that universities. I mean, maybe, I don't even know if you would say, obviously, professors, but surprisingly, the administrators, you would say, obviously, the administrators and surprisingly, the professors are overwhelmingly progressive, you know, overwhelmingly aligned with the Democratic Party, overwhelmingly aligned with liberal government. Sure. And so you're right. And I think you would expect a lot of support for the current administration coming out of those institutions. And so I think that was reflected in what we saw in in the analysis. And, um, and, and you see the same thing, obviously, with the number of union officials who, or, or union alumni who are, who are on these teams as well. Obviously, the nominee for Department of Labor uh, to be the secretary of the Department of Labor, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, 
I mean, he's a union man through and through, and he's he's a hereditary union man. His his dad was, his dad led the union that he that he then led before he went off to, you know, first go to the state house, and even when he was in the state house, he was concurrently head of the Boston Building Trades Council, uh, and that was a position he didn't leave until he ran for mayor. Uh, so, you know, that that gives you an indication certainly for him, and 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 obviously a lot of these agency landing team guys. Uh, you know, probably also uh, strongly aligned with the with the union movement. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, indicative of just how important that constituency is to to the administration. You just you mentioned Department of Labor, Secretary of Labor. About forty percent of the labor team is is current or former union staff. Forty percent is a. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that that tells you who who is going to be running the department. It's going to be the trade does. unions. <laughs> it does. Yeah, and so that was an observation, and then obviously, uh, by far the most common profession or background, I guess you would say, would be um, attorney. Public sector practice, uh, private sector practice at a law firm, uh, overwhelmingly uh, attorneys on these teams. And then another thing that that people have noticed, our our colleague Mike Hartman, who was our guest last week uh, to discuss sort of the role of philanthropy, uh, you know, there's been an... A, a key role, really, for big philanthropy, big liberal philanthropy in the transition and the new administration. Has there not? There has. You know, so the philanthropy side of it's been noted. And one thing I noticed when I went through these four departments is um, that just the, the charity, the nonprofit uh, sector influence, too. I mean, uh, Justice, Labor, Education, EPA, they all have um, you know, current or former affiliated individuals who are yeah, affiliated with these, I would call them activist nonprofit groups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you, uh, Department of Justice, for instance, has you know someone who's on the advisory board of a project of the Tide Center, the New Venture Fund, which are major fiscal sponsors of, of you, know, you call them yeah, left of all, progressive of all, of all sorts of left progressive criminal justice, you know, lean, criminal leniency sort of organizations. Sure, um, you know, Demand Justice, which is the one of the main. That's a Fiscally sponsored project of the 1630 fund, which is a um, part of the same Arabella yeah, it's, network. Yeah, it's in the there. it's in the Arabella network with New Venture. Sure, um, they've got two people on uh, one on justice and one on um, I, think, I think it was labor who uh, you know, on their Supreme Court shortlist, right? The people that they want to see on the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. At least two of those people are on on those two agency review teams. Um, if you look at the Department of Labor, you know, one thing that's interesting about labor, we were talking about this a second ago. So we say 40% of the labor team are, are current or former union staff, but even that underestimates, I think, the influence of organized labor on that department. Because there are you know, other C3s, you know, 501C3 nonprofit organizations that you might describe as you know, union aligned or very, very either funded by. Or yeah, the, nat- very- the, the sort of the National Employment Law Projects, the, exactly. all the state level think tanks that are part of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, you know, people affiliated at various points with Economic Policy Institute. You know, there's this whole network of labor union funded, labor union officered in many cases, institutions that are not technically labor unions, but carry the flag for organized labor. I think you mentioned National Employment Law Project. I mean, that's a that's a great example of an organization. You know, on the labor team for the, the agency review team, it had that organization had two current staff, two former staff, and one board member on the team. And so that's a, that's, and, and that's a and that's a big and that's a big deal. Uh, 
you know, I, I remember at a, at a, for a previous employer uh, doing some research on the influence of, of the labor unions on San Francisco's government. Uh, and one thing that we found, we did some open records requests, one thing that we found was that it was the, the lawyers at NELP, the lawyers at National Employment Law Project, basically got, you know, and it's, it's all there on government, you know, on government emails that were subject to our open records request, that they basically had, a, had sign-off on whether San Francisco's, it was the predictable scheduling, right, regulating the ability of, of, uh, of employers to, uh, to set their hourly workers' schedules, whether those regulations that San Francisco was proposing were closely enough aligned with the labor union interest. Right. And so it, it, if you know, the agency review teams are any indication, you would expect that organization or at least priorities aligned with that organization to be very influential on, on the Biden administration's Department of Labor. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, ex I would expect undersecretaries and assistant secretaries to be plucked from, from that organization if they haven't already been. Sure. Um, and, you know, another example of, of the influence of, of one particular interest group over, you know, a particular department, you know, if you look at the education, which was another one we looked at, the Department of Education, you know, at least five of the members of that agency review team are current or former union staff. And in this context, it yeah, means teachers the unions. yeah, teachers unions, American Federation of Teachers or, or National Education Association. And so that's an influential constituency. In, um, yeah, and those are, those are two giant organizations that have leveraged their power, especially in, I mean, we've seen it perhaps most obviously in the past year when they've against just about all scientific guidance that, They've managed to keep schools locked down, uh, but again, throughout, I mean, they've long been a crucial constituency group in the in the Democratic Party, a big donor uh, to both institutional liberal organizations, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party's aligned PACs, uh, state-level Democrats, local-level Democrats, um, and as we have seen in the past year, and as you know, if those of us who you know, remember back before, you know, no going back even further that when the teachers unions have strong influence, the schools are operated for the benefit of their teachers, not for the benefit of their students. So a strong teachers union influence at the Department of Education is probably not in our long-term best interests. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and at the EPA, you know, uh, you, like you would expect, a lot of environmental groups there, Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund represented there. Uh, one, um, Earth Justice, which is a, um, a pro bono nonprofit litigation firm, the team lead for the EPA um, is the vice president of that organization. And then another, um, one of their former which, vice which presidents. Calls, which calls to mind the old Obama administration tactic of sue and settle, where the, the environmentalists would sue the government for not enforcing environmental law enough, and then the Obama administration would agree to do whatever the environmental group told them to as part of a legal settlement. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and Earth Justice, they, on their website, they uh, claim that they sued the Trump administration for its environmental policy over 130 times. And you know, I've written about this in, in other contexts with uh, something called grantee plaintiffs that they've, um, that I know they've represented in the past where 
the grantee plaintiff would be an organization, nonprofit organization that has received federal grant money from, you know, an agency or department, and then turns around and sues that same, in some cases that same, in some cases a different uh, agency or department over some policy that it enacted. So you have the weird situation of, you know, taxpayers in some respects subsidizing both sides of litigation over over policies from their democratically elected government. It's kind of a frustrating situation sometimes. But yeah, so that's a, a that organization has two members on the on the uh, agency review team for the EPA. So again, we mentioned a number of them, but if it ha are there any ones in, in all your work, any associations that have stood out to you that we haven't brought up already in our conversation? You know, I think we've covered, you know, these, the, the big ones, organized labor, um, some of the more activist nonprofit groups. I and mean, we're going to move on here um, for the next batch coming up here, hopefully next week for uh, departments of interior, transportation, uh, treasury and energy. So those are the next four we'll, we'll try to cover here. And now that we're in the Biden administration, we might see some of these policies yeah, we, starting to be we, we should yeah we should see i mean we we saw us you know we mentioned some of the executive or executive actions from the first day uh in our opening but yeah you'll see the nomination of undersecretaries deputy secretaries and deputy secretary is an extremely powerful position in any department uh the 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 secretary is in many ways just the face and the deputy secretary is the one who makes sure that that all the all the trains are running on time, that everything is being done in alignment with uh, the the administration's policies and with the policy guidance of OMB. Uh, so, so that is, again, something that we'll be watching. And, uh, you know, again, the appointments of the assistant secretaries, all the undersecretaries who, who make the little, who, you know, drive the, I guess, drive the trains that the, that the DEPSECs are, sig are signaling for. <laughs> Right. And I think the other piece of it is, as you know, as we go through the next you know months and, and years here and we start to see regulations and policies and, and things coming out of the of the Biden administration, we may be able to point back to some of these um, activist groups that were influential, at least on the people who formed the initial transition teams here and be able to point back to the you know, sort of the genesis of those policies from some of these nonprofit groups. And I, so I think that's sort of the value of this going forward you know, to, to people looking to understand the government that um, we're going to have for at least the next four years. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Robert, thank you for joining us. Thank you for all your hard work and it, as, it, as it is ongoing. Uh, that's our show for this week. Uh, we encourage our listeners to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week. <laughs>